the San Francisco Experience podcast. Brought to you by Jim Hurley. Independent commentary from a Silicon Valley perspective for a global audience, featuring newsmakers, thought leaders, and authors. Season 22, Episode 14. Sweden, Turkey, and NATO. Where do we stand? Talking with Paul Levin, professor at Stockholm University. Our guest today is Paul Levin, director at the Stockholm University Institute of Turkish Studies, or SUITS. He joins us from his office in Stockholm. Hello, Paul, and welcome to the show. Hi, and thank you for having me. Paul, please take a moment to tell us about your work at SUITS. SUITS is a relatively recent creation. We were established in 2012 at Stockholm University. Originally, we had uh, financing and support in addition from Stockholm University. We also had support from Turkish and Swedish private sector partners. Now we are funded solely by Stockholm University, and we are a research institute that uh, conducts research and disseminates knowledge about uh, Turkish affairs, uh, both about the Turkish diaspora in Sweden, Turkish politics, society, culture, history, economics um, as well. Very impressive. Paul, tell us about the history of the relationship between Sweden and Turkey. Sweden, of course, is a Scandinavian country with 10 million people. It's 1,600 miles north of Turkey. And Turkey, of course, has a population of 70 million. Neither country, of course, shares any borders, nor have the two countries ever fought a war. Yet there's a deep animosity between the two countries that has stymied Sweden's accession to NATO, and most importantly, has jeopardized the security of the Baltic region. How did these two unlikely foes come to be? I, I would take issue with the description of, of Sweden and Turkey as foes, but you're definitely right in, in that tensions have been ratcheted up over the, the past year. And it is somewhat surprising for somebody who studies Swedish-Turkish relations because traditionally relations with, between Sweden and Turkey have been pretty good. Turkey has had these kind of diplomatic conflagrations with a number of other countries, including the U.S. in the past, but Sweden has been relatively spared from them. Swedish-Turkish relations actually go back quite far. I mean, there was a Swedish king, Charles XII, who in uh, 17, in the early uh, 1800s, uh, I mean, sorry, 1700s, went to Turkey to beg the Sodom, uh, Ottoman Sultan to partnership, partner up in an alliance against Russia. Hmm. And he uh, stayed in the Ottoman uh, town of Bender, I think it's today's Moldova. And he stayed for so long uh, trying to convince the Sultan that uh, eventually, the, the Turks uh, felt obliged to more or less forcefully kick him out. <laughs> and he, he, he failed uh, in his efforts to, to build an alliance with Turkey, which is you know, maybe it's, uh, symptomatic of where we're at today. One dimension of Turkish-Swedish uh, relations is that many Turks moved to Sweden in, uh, in the beginning of the 1960s to find work. Mm -hmm. After the end of World War II, Swedish industry, which was relatively... Uh, unscathed from the war, Sweden hadn't, having been neutral, was busy rebuilding Sweden and Europe and uh, needed foreign labor. And many came from Turkey, both ethnic Turks and ethnic Kurds uh, came to Sweden. 
Uh, and then in later years, Sweden has had a very generous migration policy when it comes to people seeking asylum. And that means that people fled from Turkey, both leftists fled after the coup in 1980, mm -hmm. and also many Kurds fled in the wake of the fighting between the Kurdish guerrilla PKK uh, and the Turkish state in the 1980s and 90s. Uh, so we have a large community of, of uh, exiled Turks, some of whom are labor migrants and some of whom are political refugees. And especially the political refugees, the Kurds have been very active in Sweden. They've found a hospitable environment. The Swedish state has supported civil society organizations. You have had Kurdish, uh, a Kurdish library here, Kurdish publications at a time when the Kurdish language was prohibited in Turkey. So Sweden became a sort of an, an important locus for the, the Kurdish intellectual uh, diaspora and, and the political movement that aspired autonomy or, or even succession. And I think that is what we see now, that, that the presence of, of Kurdish uh, activists, including members of the PKK, who have been active in Sweden, even though Sweden was perhaps the first European country to actually labeled her if the PKK a terrorist organization. Mm. They have been present in Sweden and the Swedish authorities have been rather lax in enforcing anti-terrorist laws generally, but perhaps in particular when it comes to Kurdish organizations like the PKK. That is what has raised Ankara's ire. And that's what we see now when Sweden is wanting to join NATO. Turkey all of a sudden has leverage to push Sweden to, to listen to, to their concerns and, and get tougher on the PKK. Back a couple of months ago, when NATO had its summit in Vilnius, the Lithuanian capital, I read that Erdogan at that point had agreed in principle to support Swedish entry into NATO. So where does Sweden's application to join NATO stand at this point, and where does Turkey stand on the issue? Well, I think that's a question that the Swedish government would like to have an answer to as well. <laughs> I think uh, there was an expectation and a hope that with Erdogan's agreement in Vilnius, as you correctly pointed out, and, and the handshake between him and the Swedish Prime Minister Ulf Kisterson and, and the NATO Secretary General, the issue was solved. It doesn't turn out to be that way. Erdogan then shortly after the meeting seemed to be backpedaling somewhat. He uh, raised the, the specter of Turkish EU accession as a potential condition that uh, Sweden could join NATO uh, only when Turkey had joined the European Union. And anybody who's followed that saga knows mm. that that is a very long ways away. Mm -hmm. uh, he sort of backtracked from, from those harsher statements. But he did say that he agreed to, to submit his approval uh, to the Turkish parliament for ratification. Uh, but, and he would do so s swiftly. But then after Vilnius, he said that, well, the Turkish parliament is now on summer recess. Uh, so we have to wait until they open again. Uh, so we, and he has since also said that there is some opposition in parliament to Swedish accession, and I can't force people to vote in favor. So we'll see if it passes or not, but I will, I will put it forth for ratification when parliament opens. So parliament is set to open on October 1st. Uh, I don't know if there is a date yet for ratification, but it's a little bit unclear as to whether there will be a majority in favor of ratification in October. And, uh, exactly um, how 
hard Erdogan will push his the members of his own party and the well as those the parties that are within his alliance to vote in favor. In the lead up to that meeting in Vilnius, the the NATO summit, there were negotiations between Sweden and Turkey. What concessions did Sweden make to Turkey? Before that NATO summit, what has Sweden at this point actually agreed to do or not do to kind of bring the Turks along? Well, you're right that there were some negotiations in the lead up to this year's NATO summit. But the, the main negotiations were actually in the lead up to last year's NATO summit in Madrid. Those negotiations resulted in a, an agreement, uh, so, the so-called trilateral memorandum between Sweden, Finland, and Turkey. And in that, the signatory specified a number of, of uh, steps that Sweden and Finland should take in order for Turkey to, to accept them as members. And they have to do with the struggle against terrorism, primarily. And they also had to do with uh, Sweden and Finland, and, and in particular Sweden, uh, considering Turkish requests for extraditions, also removing any arms embargoes against Turkey. So those three broad categories uh, um, were, were sort of what Sweden agreed to do. Now, if you read the agreement, it is, it's a little vague. Diplomats often like to talk about uh, diplomatic ambiguity or constructive ambiguity. I think uh, that ambiguity was needed in order to get that memorandum signed. But it also meant that it was a little bit difficult to come to agree on when Sweden and Finland had actually uh, implemented the agreement. Uh, I mean, there are statements in the agreement to the effect that Sweden and Finland commit to fight terror financing and um, uh, terror recruitment. Well, I mean, that's a commitment. When exactly do you say that that uh, that has been fulfilled? It's it's a matter of judgment. And and Turkey long said that it was dissatisfied and, and was not content with the Swedish actions. Sweden claims that it has abided, uh, implemented the agreement. Uh, and work on implementing it is ongoing. We have, to be concrete in answering your question, we have sharpened our anti-terror laws. We have amended our constitution as well in order to uh, make it possible to uh, um, prohibit being a, a member of a terrorist organization. In the past, it was only possible to uh, prohibit conducting terrorist actions. Mm -hmm. uh, Sweden has started uh, exporting arms equipment to Turkey or, or military equipment to Turkey and has listened to and considered all requests for deportation and uh, extradition that Turkey has put forth to Sweden. There haven't been many actual extraditions or deportations and, uh, and no extraditions of, of terror suspects, only of, of regular criminal suspects, if you will. But uh, it was never a promise in this, this agreement that Sweden would extradite any, any given number of people to Turkey. All in all, Sweden has made concessions. And in Sweden, there's been a debate uh, where many think that Sweden has made too many concessions. Mm -hmm. It has made many Kurds, especially politically active, uh, politically active Kurds um, in Sweden, worried uh, about facing potential deportation to Turkey, where they might face uh, mistreatment or even torture. There have been, I think it is, if it now is two or three people, PKK suspects who are not Swedish citizens, who have been deported to, to Turkey. The Swedish government, of course, says that the, the, the agreements that it has made are all in line with Swedish and international law. And Turkey, of course, complains that Sweden has not made significant enough concessions. And, and I guess the truth is somewhere in, in, in between. 
Mm-hmm. Tell me, where does the United States stand on this? Has the United States weighed in on these discussions between Sweden and Turkey? Because it's certainly in the interest of all of NATO to have Sweden, the largest country in the Scandinavian region, it's certainly in, in everyone's interest to have Sweden join NATO, also with a, a very modern, well-equipped army and air force and navy. So has the United States taken any steps to bring the two parties together and to bridge the gap? Well, so this is a very interesting question. There are many, there's a debate in Sweden now. And some some think that Sweden, the Swedish government made a mistake in ever entering into negotiations with Turkey directly. The argument goes that Sweden is trying to join NATO, uh, not not Turkey, and, and uh, therefore it should be up to the organization and its leader, the United States, to, to deal with a country like Turkey who doesn't want to, who wants to prevent NATO enlargement. Mm-hmm. I think that would have been very, I think the Swedish government would have been very happy to let the U.S. take the lead on this. But my understanding is that Washington was quite reluctant and they were reluctant to to uh, sort of interfere for uh, I think a couple of reasons. One is that Biden, who was uh, also facing an election, was not uh, really interested in inserting himself and therefore becoming the subject of Turkish potential you know pressure or blackmail, mm-hmm. if you will. And also that even you know doing so may actually might actually make things worse. Uh, um, and there are a lot of issues, bilateral issues between Turkey and the U.S. that remain unsolved. Yes. Te- relations have not been easy at all. Uh, and inserting, inserting the U.S. in between here w- would uh, potentially just make things worse. So those are the two main reasons. I think there's a third reason as well. And that is that, you know, some NATO allies felt that, uh, you know, it wasn't unreasonable for Turkey to raise concerns regarding the presence of the PKK in Sweden. Sweden wanting to join a, 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 a defense alliance would do well to listen to all members and uh, take into you know, concerns any any concerns that they had into national security. So I think it was up to Swe- the Swedish government to first negotiate with Turkey, to first listen, sit down, listen to the Turkish concerns, try to address them as best they could, and only then could other NATO allies step in. Mm-hmm. Now, and, and they have. And one of the things, ways in which other NATO allies have supported Sweden and Finland, Sweden, Finland, of course, joined um, before Sweden, Sweden, was to provide security assurances, not, you know, these Article 5 guarantees that you get as, mm-hmm. a, as a member of, of NATO, but assurances that we would not be left alone in case of a, a Russian attack on, on Swedish, Swedish, Swedish interests or soil. Also very strong sort of verbal support for, for enlargement and very quick, uh, record fast ratification of the Swedish and, and Finnish uh, accessions from all other uh, NATO allies, except Sweden, uh, Turkey, and Hungary. Mm-hmm. Finally, I would say that you know there are many who think that Turkish Turkey's concerns that they have raised regarding the PKK um, are sort of uh, just a fig leaf. That mm-hmm. really, what Turkey wants is something else, and Turkey wants either uh, you know wants other NATO allies to address Turkish concerns regarding mm-hmm. the PKK and its affiliate in Syria, the YPG, um, and the U.S. Of, of course is is uh, collaborating with the Kurdish militias in northern Syria, uh, something that Turkey has been been very angry with for quite some time. 
And Turkey also wants to modernize its fleet of, uh, Amer- uh, of fighter jets. Turkey runs the F-16 fighter jets, <laughs> and they need to be modernized. Uh, and they're looking to purchase new jets and modernization kits and ammunition to it, to its F-16s. Um, and that is currently held up in Congress. Using Suido uh, could be a way to get leverage in those negotiations. So the plot thickens. Turkey clearly has a wider agenda apart from the PKK and the Kurds, uh, Turkish arms, modernizing its air force, and so on and so forth. But let's just come back to to Sweden. On the one hand, Sweden, certainly during my lifetime, uh, Sweden has always played a uh, a great role as uh, the global conscience, if you will, taking unpopular positions with some Western governments, whether it was over Vietnam or the Iraq War and so on and so forth. And Sweden has also for a, a relatively small population country, has also been very generous in opening its doors to political refugees, whether they were from Chile or Iran, Iraq, and other countries where those refugees faced South Africa, to mention another one. But that was during a time when Sweden was a neutral country where the security risks in the Baltics were not what they are today. Is there any introspection on the part of Swedish society that now at a time when Sweden really needs NATO and Sweden really needs the rest of uh, Europe and North America, that they're not there for Sweden, in part because, you know, it, 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 are Swedes seeing this as a tit for tat for Sweden having been so so vocal in its support of human rights and sort of the, the downtrodden political organizations throughout the world? Is there is there any kind of discussion of that in Sweden? Well, I think you're right in, in, in sort of painting this picture of, of a, I mean, to Sweden, in Sweden, it is a rather convulsive same time. Um, that's a poor way of putting it, but it, it's uh, it's a tumultuous time yes. for Sweden. We are all of a sudden waking up to realpolitik. Mm-hmm. You know, the traditional core instruments of Swedish foreign policy have been, a, you know, g- very generous foreign aid budget, yes. strong support for multilateral organizations, and as you mentioned, a generous refugee asylum policy. You know, those have been costly in some respects, but um, we've been able to, in some respects, lecture, lecture other countries uh, as the, the, the global moral conscience without really putting anything at stake uh, ourselves. All of a sudden, there's something uh, you know, very much at stake. It's yes. the Swedish uh, core national security interest to get mm-hmm. into NATO uh, in light of the, the war in, in Ukraine. Then our positions, yes, the, uh, on the Kurdish issue, um, you know, all of a sudden, that's, uh, that's a very real cost. And Sweden is having to make difficult choices right now between uh, standing up for for sort of you know core moral principles and its national security interests, and it's been a very unpleasant, uh, I think, uh, situation for many Swedes. And uh, you know there are different points of views on this. Uh, there are some, uh, perhaps, in particular on the right, who have long felt that um, you know Sweden has engaged in a kind of moral hypocrisy. We should have abandoned our neutrality for quite some time ago. Our neutrality position was always a position that was always combined with 
uh, a de facto understanding during the Cold War that we were politically ultimately aligned with the West. And yes. in case of a conflict, we would uh, expect and hope for support from the United States. So, you know, there's always that that uh, that complication. From the left here in Sweden, I think many people are very critical that the government has been, uh, as they see, sacrificing principles. These, you know, the, the threats of deportations of of, uh, of Kurds, uh, politically active Kurds. People find it rather unpleasant uh, to that the Swedish prime minister is seen as sort of bowing to a, a foreign autocrat like like Erdogan. It's a difficult issue, but there's still strong support for the for the the goal of NATO accession uh, mm-hmm. in Sweden, and that is a massive change in Sweden in just a, 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 the span of, of just a year. Mm. Um, we've gone from not even you know from NATO accession being almost inconceivable to now over sixty percent of Swedes being in support of NATO accession. So and, something fundamental has, has, has changed. So you've seen this fundamental shift in public opinion in Sweden sw- going from not being part of NATO to being a majority being in favor of uh, joining NATO. Has that also affected the political landscape in Sweden? Have you seen, have you seen shifts in support for, for parties that are stronger on defense? Not really. Interestingly enough, it was a, a, a social democratic government came turned around a long-standing core social democratic foreign and security policy position uh, when it came to what they called freedom from, from alliance, that is Sweden's non-aligned status. They were the ones who uh, submitted Swedish the Swedish application to join NATO, and they did so rather quickly. Uh, and uh, critics, you know, argue that they did so because they wanted to avoid it being an issue in, in the Swedish elections. Mm-hmm. So it didn't really become a, an election issue in Sweden. We have problems with uh, violent shootings uh, and, and violent organized crime in Sweden these days. That's become much more of an issue. Refugees and immigration policy has also become an issue. And there's been a, a rightward surge in, in Swedish politics on those issues. But it's one where most parties have, in fact, sort of uh, uh, shifted to the right. So right now in Swedish parliament, there are only two parties who are against NATO accession. It's the left party, the former communists, and the Green Party. Uh, all the other parties are to in, in, with you know, varying degrees and, and uh, are in support of, of NATO accession. And also, after the end of the Cold War, Sweden disarmed quite significantly. We had a, a large armed uh, force uh, back then with universal conscription. I did my military service as a young man. Mm-hmm. I was an infantry soldier. Uh, and then we, we uh, uh, abandoned that universal cons- conscription and cut down in defense. And in recent years, uh, with increasing Russian belligerence uh, and then culminating in the, in the, the invasion of, of Ukraine, uh, first in 2014, of course, but then now uh, last year, there's now a, a more or less consensus that Sweden needs to uh, increase arms uh, spending and, and spend more on defense. Um, so it, interestingly, uh, foreign policy has not really become much of, of uh, a domestic political issue. question that I want to ask is, is there a magic bullet that Sweden has been saving up and hoping not to use, but ultimately can use to move the position of Turkey in favor of voting the accession of Sweden? Is there what are the next steps for Sweden to to get this political 
stalemate, fixed and solved? Well, I think there are things that Sweden, you know, theoretically could do. I mean, there are uh, Sweden theoretically could have extradited a, a number of people to Turkey, but that would have been, been in violation with Swedish law and the European Convention on Extradition. So, I think those kind of steps w- are, are sort of off off the the table. I think right now Sweden has implemented many of these the steps taken uh, and that they, they said that they would in the trilateral memorandum from last year. And I think at this point, the magic bullet is with the U.S. Congress, in fact. My guess is that right now what is needed to push Turkey to, to ratify is that, is that a deal on F-16 fighter jets that is being held up in the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, that that goes through. I think that is what Erdogan is waiting for. And I think that once that goes through, and we're not certain that it will, then I, I'm my bet is that Erdogan would ratify the Swedish accession or have parliament ratified, uh, possibly in October. Mm-hmm. Well, Paul, in the remaining few minutes of the podcast, what are your closing thoughts? And of course, my final question is, will Sweden be a member of NATO by December 31st, 2023? Well, my final thoughts, I guess, would have to do with Turkish foreign policy today. Uh, I mean, what we've seen in Turkey is over the past uh, decade or so is uh, a very different foreign policy than we've seen during the Cold War, for example. Turkish Turkish foreign policy used to be very prudential. It mm-hmm. used to be restrained uh, and quite predictable. Uh, there was always a strong nationalist component, but, but it was never very um, assertive in terms of its foreign relations. And it was Turkey was always very securely in a uh, Western camp. Mm-hmm. The NATO membership was a, a sort of the cornerstone of, of Turkish foreign and security policy. Under this government, which, uh, you know, has roots in political Islam, that has changed. Uh, Turkey is now much more active and dynamic. Uh, Some might might even say belligerent in Mm -hmm. terms of its foreign policy. It is not hesitant when it comes to getting entangled in in, uh, foreign adventures, whether it be sending mercenaries to Libya uh, or uh, making incursions into Iraq or Syria. And it's also not Turkey does not seem to have many inhibitions these days to use whatever leverage it has to ex- exert concessions, uh, whether it be from from foes or from for allies or, as in, in Sweden's case, prospective allies. So it's a it's a different kind of country when it comes to its foreign policy um, and uh, demands attention from from and, and uh, Turkey refuses to be ignored. It wants to position itself as a strong and autonomous actor not as a subservient member of an, a Western alliance. And that's a, that's a very different uh, kind of a, a country to, to, for allies to deal with. So I think that's here to stay. However, since Erdogan secured re-election uh, this past summer, uh, he has turned westward. He is now flirting with, with Western institutions. Um, he's hoping to get uh, you know, funding from the World Bank, uh, he's hoping to to get investor confidence back in Turkey, uh, and much of that has to do with a very weak Turkish economy. So I think in in that light, approving uh, NATO enlargement uh, seems would be in line with with that most recent trend that we see. So I would actually, you know, if I were to bet, um, I would bet that Sweden is a member of of NATO within this year. 
Uh, it might happen as soon as October when the Turkish parliament is uh, set to open and is supposed to be considering the Swedish accession. But there are wild cards. The Turkish-American deal over uh, fighter jets, the F-16s, is one important component for that to happen. And then I think we're likely to see more provocations from actors in Sweden who don't want NATO mm. accession, mm-hmm. uh, whether it be Quran burnings or um, demonstrations, uh, pro-PKK demonstrations waving PKK flags. Mm-hmm. It remains to be seen whether they can derail the prospects of, of uh, Turkish parliament ratifying, but um, something to, to look for anyway. Well, fingers crossed, Paul. I think we'd all uh, we're all looking forward to having Sweden join NATO and uh, where where they hope where they should have been many years ago what we're delighted that Sweden has made the decision to join NATO improve security in the Baltics. And Paul, how can our listeners follow you? Well, I'm very active on Twitter, Paul T. Levin. Uh, if they're interested in uh, reading our policy briefs that we now give out on a regular basis, they can go to our website, suits.com. SU.SE, I think, is the, the website. Otherwise, you can just search for the Stockholm University Institute for Turkish Studies. Mm-hmm. And Paul, are you working on any other projects, upcoming books, anything along those lines that you'd like to share with our listeners? Well, I have some projects in the pipeline. There's nothing set to come out right now. If anybody's interested in reading an analysis of this particular issue that we've been talking about, I wrote a policy paper for um, an American think tank, Forum Policy Research Institute, uh, FPRI, and they have uh, uh, that on their website, which might be interesting to read. Okay. Well, once again, Paul, thank you for joining us and look forward to having you come back, hopefully before the end of the year, when uh, finally Sweden has been admitted to NATO and we can talk about the role that Sweden is going to play in NATO once they actually become a member. So again, we appreciate you taking the time to explain this this relationship between Sweden and Turkey and look forward to having you back, hopefully in the next couple of months when we can celebrate Sweden's accession to NATO. Uh, That'd be great. Thank you for having me. My pleasure. And for our listeners, today's episode is number 440. The San Francisco Experience podcast is featured on Apple Podcast, Spotify, Pandora, 18 platforms in total, with listeners in 60 countries. We were recently recognized as, as a top 25 California news podcast by Feedspot. This has been the San Francisco Experience podcast with Jim Herlihy coming to you from San Francisco.